snowstorm going on and yeah in the middle of the night I think it was about three in the morning so right away I kind of figured it was one of the kids so Laura Hinkey is the mother of Bailey Hinkey they found 18 year old Bailey Hinkey dead of an overdose of fentanyl fentanyl that came from Brandon Hubbard what I didn't know is that in one of those packages that had been sent to Grand Forks, North Dakota in December of a gram of fentanyl, and it went to somebody who sold it to somebody who had overdosed and died. Bailey's death set in motion an extraordinary federal case that would take down an international fentanyl ring. But before that, he was just a kid from North Dakota. I went to see Bailey's mom last year in Grand Forks, where she still lives with Bailey's dog, a black lab mix he named Pop-Tart. While we talk, Laura is smiling the whole time, even when she cries. So you just get a knock on the door in the middle of the night? Yep. What do they say? They just asked for my ID, and, and I was like, okay, yeah. They just basically told me that there was a party and, you know, what happened and stuff, and... And then what it was, they told us fentanyl, and I was like, I have no idea what that is. I'm Keegan Hamilton, and this is Painkiller, America's Fentanyl Crisis. Episode two, that would be murder. We got some uh, like trailer homes, like prefab houses, single, single wide trailers. People here ain't rich. Seven. My dad's side of my family's from West Virginia, and like, so I spent a lot of time out there, and everyone's in a trailer out there. You work on it for a few years, and you start building onto it, and like, the things that you can do with a trailer as the base are pretty incredible. That's that's what my family's home was actually. We had a double wide trailer that they built, they remodeled, and built off it. Four. Is it? What's up, Kane? Hey, how's it going? Hey, it's Keegan. Nice to meet you. Likewise, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a a lavalier, like a little mic on you. I'm from International Falls, Minnesota originally. I was born there, but I've lived here my whole life. So, in Grand Forks, my producer Jesse and I also meet up with Kane Schwant, Bailey's best friend. I've always wanted to live somewhere else. I just have never had the means or motivation, I guess, to move away. Um, and it's pretty cold out, you know, five, six months out of the year, snow, rain. So if you like outdoor stuff, not really the place to be. And there's really not a whole lot to do indoor wise. I mean, from my perspective, I mean, there's a reason that North Dakota is highly ranked on like the alcohol consumption for the United States. How'd you guys meet? Uh, at a house party. We found out that we live like three, four blocks away from each other. And he's like, well, hey, man, if you ever want to hang out, you know, let's do that. If you ever need a ride to school, give me a call. And so I think Monday I called him and asked for a ride to school. And we just started hanging out pretty much every day. He had a very energized personality, um, easy to be around, easy to talk to. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's just, he was just somebody that I think people gravitated towards. Mm -hmm. um, 
I know I think that's how it was for me. So to call him a friend was kind of a blessing. Kane and Bailey were both misfits in high school, two bored white boys from a small town. This is Bailey's mom again, Laura. You also had mentioned earlier that you, you kind of felt like Kane was a son in a way. Did you blame, blame him for what happened? Never. No. Because yeah. <sighs> I saw the good in him. So, you know, Bailey always said that Kane was a good person and had his own struggles, but Bailey was always there to be his friend. So I stood by that. Kane had been getting high for a while. He got in trouble for drinking and bringing weed to school right before he turned 16. It was around that same time that Laura figured out something was up with Bailey, too. I caught him smoking marijuana in the house, and he thought he was being sneaky by smoking it by the furnace in the basement, which in return blew it throughout the house. And, yeah, we had that conversation. I'm like, do you think I don't smell that? <laughs> classic so, kid mistake. Yeah, very <laughs> classic, but, yeah. Still, his parents aren't worried. They figure it's regular teenager stuff. Bailey is having a hard time towards the end of high school, so his parents take him to look at other schools, trying to find a better fit. It's around this time that Bailey decides he wants to be a cop. Kane was actually with us when we went to the school when Bailey wanted to be a cop and did the tour with us and everything, too. And I said, Kane, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should come to school here, finish high school, and... You know, join Bailey. You know, Kane was like a brother to Bailey. You know, and they always said, don't don't tell your kids who they can, can and cannot be friends with. So, of course, I would question them. But, you know, I'm always like, you, you know, you know yourself. You know what's right and what's wrong. But by the time they're out of high school, Bailey and Kane are into much harder drugs. I don't know what point it was, maybe a couple weeks in to him living with me, but I was sitting in my room and I was smoking some heroin and Bailey asked me for some. And I was like, um, no. I told him no initially. I wasn't gonna be the first person to get him high. I wasn't gonna be the person that got him hooked on it. And his reply was, well, I've already done it. You know, I've, I've already used it before. And I was like, with who, where, you know? And it was a couple days prior at his friend's garage, he said, and uh, from there, it was kind of like, okay, you know, now I got somebody to use with. And so it kind of just went south after that. It just kind of happened, uh, hanging out with people that were doing heroin and the people I was getting heroin from. And just one day, there's a fentanyl patch a medical transdermal patch. And I'd never heard of it before, didn't know what it was. And they're like, yeah, you just cut the corner, you squeeze some gel on some tinfoil, and you light it up. And I was like, well, that seems easy enough. Uh, I did that, and that was way more intense than heroin. And I kind of instantly fell in love. And then all of a sudden, there's word about fentanyl powder which is, you know, 10 times cheaper than heroin and 10 times stronger. So I'm like, oh, I need to get that, you know, and that's how that happened. Fentanyl is more powerful than anything they've ever used before. 
including heroin. There's kind of a common sense factor there that not just anybody should do this, um, especially if you're not used to it, you know. It would, it would be murder if I were to walk up to you and say, here, try this, and I walk away. It would, that would be murder. Kane and Bailey try to quit using fentanyl, but they're hooked. It's the day after New Year's in January 2015 when Kane leaves Bailey at a party in Grand Forks. Some guys they know are hanging out, playing video games, and freebasing fentanyl off of tinfoil. Kane is out on a food run when his cell phone rings. I was putting gas in and I get a call saying, Hey, Bailey won't wake up. I was like, oh, okay, you need to wake him up. I said, I'd do whatever you have to do, throw him in the shower, like, give him CPR, call 911, you know? And uh, I was like, I'm on my way. Like, I, I'm at the gas station, I'm on my way. He's like, Bailey won't wake up, man. Like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I'm almost there. He's a couple blocks away. So I get there, I run in, run downstairs to his apartment. I check for a pulse. He doesn't have one. I had to pull him off the couch. Um, I started giving him CPR, at which time I told another friend that we were with to call 911. And yeah, it was too late. Bailey Hinky was pronounced dead just after midnight on January 3rd, 2015. I had no idea. And my assumption was somebody spiked his Gatorade or... Because I was like, I have no idea what that is. I know a lot of people hear about it and they think, well, that's not my kid. Not at all. But, I mean, I was completely clueless. Later that day, police officers come to interview Kane. They'd heard he was selling heroin and that he'd helped get the fentanyl that caused Bailey to overdose. He gets arrested and hauled off to jail. She's like, Your Honor, we also want to ask for an increase in bail. Um, the defendant was also in possession of a unknown substance considered to be linked to the death of at least one individual. And, like, hearing that, I mean, I just... I, my heart stopped. You know, I'm thinking, like, now I'm really being accused for killing my best friend? Kane is in bigger trouble than he realizes. His case isn't local. The feds are involved, and they're linking Kane to a major fentanyl trafficker who goes by the name PDX Black. He's like, well, you've been indicted on a conspiracy. So I didn't know what a conspiracy was, really, and I didn't know what an indictment was. All I know is that an indictment was not something that you wanted. And then I get a piece of paper. They put me in front of the judge, and I get a piece of paper saying United States of America versus... Kinchwand and Brandon Hubbard. And then I don't recognize as Brandon Hubbard. Like, I have no clue who that is. Never heard of him before. I'm 18 years old and I'm thinking, like, what? How am I here? Like, what? Where did my life go so wrong that I'm sitting in a courtroom facing the United States of America? get away and create a, you know, another layer of security between me and anything connected with me. You know, I was, I was eyeballing like Southern California. Around the time that Bailey Hinky overdoses, Brandon Hubbard is planning to leave Oregon. After realizing he isn't the father of his then girlfriend Channing's baby, he decides he's done with the relationship. He's gonna move to California. At the end of 2014, he finds an Airbnb rental in West Hollywood. 
He begins to pack his stuff and make plans. But by January of 2015, he starts to feel like he's being watched. One day, he's putting some of his things in his car when he spots a Dodge van with a woman sitting in it. It feels totally out of place. As he walks away, the woman gets on her cell phone. There's another incident that gives him a bad feeling. When I went around to the front of my apartment in January, the middle of January, and there's a guy, you know, in an unfinished condo across the street uh, on his deck cleaning his barbecue. He ignores the bad feeling. But then a few days later... Then I got a knock on the door about, I don't know, 1 o'clock in the morning, 1.30 in the morning. When he answers the door, it's a guy who seems drunk, saying he just hit the black Volkswagen parked in the driveway. And he's like, just follow me out. And he's kind of trying to lead me out. How did he know where I live, you know? And how does he know that, that that's my black car out there? The drunk guy leads Brandon out the back door of his building. As soon as he exits, he sees federal agents lined up against the wall. Brandon tries to run, but three of them tackle him. They had me pushed up against my door. They're like, we got a search warrant. Where's the fentanyl? We know you got the fentanyl. When the feds search Brandon's apartment, they find his laptop, which he'd left open. They didn't need a warrant to access my vendor account. I knew I knew that I was in, in deep shit. Right there, Brandon confesses to selling fentanyl over the dark web. He says it felt good to tell them what he was doing. But then one of the officers says to him, We're from North Dakota, and uh, we're here about uh, overdose deaths in North Dakota. And my heart just dropped into my stomach. The next day, he has his first hearing in federal court, and his public defender tells him what he's facing, a life sentence. I couldn't believe it. I didn't believe it. days later, Brandon is in a holding area at a Portland jail. It's a co-ed room with male and female inmates separated by a short wall, so everyone can hear each other. I hear someone talking on the jail phone, and, you know, I recognize the voice. I'm like, oh my God, that's Channing, you know, and she was on the phone trying to call me to bail her out of jail. I went to court. I had a warrant. They arrested me on something totally different. And uh, that's when I saw him there. And it was like, at that point, no matter how pissed off I was at him, everything was out the window. I said, what the fuck are you doing here? And he told me, he said, murder. Channing's in jail on an unrelated drug charge. Brandon figures she'll be out soon, so he tells her about his secret stash, a bag of fentanyl the size of a baseball buried in his backyard. When Channing gets bailed out, she goes straight there and starts digging. And I think there was probably like 150 holes dug outside. It had to have looked crazy. She calls Brandon in jail to ask about the fentanyl stash. But she can't just ask for the drugs. Their calls are being recorded. And that's where the tomatoes came in. And I thought I was being so smart. And I was like, Brandon, I'm going to plant some tomatoes. What kitchen window is the best kitchen window, you know? She finally finds the hidden stash, but doesn't make it very far. 
She's cleared out the apartment and is just pulling out of the driveway when the feds arrive. You know, I was Homeland Security, and that's when they were like, where's the tomatoes at, Channing? Where's the tomatoes? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And they said, where's the fucking tomatoes? Channing Lacey went digging. The federal agents have been listening to Channing's calls to Brandon at the jail. ...and tried to get fentanyl, which was buried below. They arrest her on a charge of tampering with evidence. Police say they found some disheveled dirt exactly where Lacey's boyfriend, Brandon Hubbard, had told her to look. She manages to hang on to a bit of the fentanyl, hidden inside a condom inside her body. She gives some of it away in the jail, then trades the last bit for a honey bun snack cake. The first three women who take the fentanyl OD but survive. The last woman who traded the snack cake dies of an overdose. Channing was convicted for causing the death and is still serving time in federal prison. Meanwhile, in North Dakota, Kane Schwant, Bailey's best friend, has just been released from jail with his case still pending. He also overdoses around this time from fentanyl. And there was kind of a point where I wasn't trying to kill myself, but I was okay if I overdosed. I got my hands on a fentanyl patch and I was using it and I had a friend at my house with me and I remember we were playing video games and we were gonna go for a cigarette and the next thing I know I'm waking up and I have several paramedics and police officers and a sheriff all in my bedroom surrounding me. And then I went to jail. I guess I was disappointed in him, but I was glad that he was getting help. Yeah. Um, I know what he got sentenced for wasn't directly linked to Bailey. Did you, did you know that he overdosed a couple months after this? No. Kane says he doesn't think Bailey would have ever told Laura about his addiction, even though Bailey and his mom... They always had such a close relationship. I don't, I don't think there's anything that could have prompted me to come out to my mom and say, hey, I'm using heroin and I have a problem and I need help. That's just devastating to whoever you're saying it to, and it's, it makes it more real when you say it out loud like that. Nobody wants to admit that they have a problem like that. After being in jail for a month, Brandon is sober for the first time in years. You know, I was getting healthy, or, you know, my mind was starting to clear up, you know, and lift from the, the fog. But it was almost like I was waking up from a nightmare and finding myself in a worse nightmare. Her neighbors of her southeast home tell me off-camera the couple constantly fought and that they didn't suspect that they were trying to sell fentanyl. Now they're both in jail, facing a lot of time. And his case is all over the news. It started with the death of this North Dakota teenager in early 2015. The fentanyl in his system traced up the ladder to dealers in Oregon. So that's when I knew that they were linking Bailey Hanky to me. It was sobering. Like, I, I had a ton of remorse, you know, I felt a ton of guilt. 
In December 2015, Brandon pleads guilty to drug conspiracy and money laundering charges. Because of his connection to Bailey Hinckley's death, he gets a life sentence. In the eyes of the U.S. government, supplying drugs that cause a fatal overdose is almost like committing murder. It's called drug-induced homicide. Brandon's case was just the tip of the iceberg. He started cooperating with federal investigators who took the case and ran with it. And the end result was something totally unprecedented. So far, 30 people from seven states have been charged in connection with Brandon's case. Police discovered that Henke got it from a man in Grand Forks who bought his from a supplier in Oregon that came from Canada. Brandon never knew exactly where his fentanyl supply was coming from. At that time, the most likely place would have been directly from China. But it turned out there was a middleman, a Colombian national who ran a fentanyl operation from inside a prison cell in Canada, using a smuggled cell phone to connect major distributors like Brandon with the actual manufacturers in China. And was made and shipped from China by a 38-year-old man named John Zhang. Because the feds were able to log into Brandon's accounts, they took down the Colombian guy too. And for the first time in U.S. history, prosecutors revealed today that Zhang and another Chinese man have been charged with making tons of fentanyl. They filed charges against several Chinese nationals suspected of manufacturing fentanyl and shipping it to the U.S. So far, neither Chinese man is in custody. The U.S. says China needs to do more. And it's not over. Federal law enforcement declined to talk to us, citing an ongoing investigation. I was very pleased about that case for a number of reasons. But in the fall of 2019, I sat down with Rod Rosenstein, the former deputy attorney general who oversaw the indictments of the Chinese nationals connected to Brandon's case. Obviously, individual cases like that don't solve the problem, but uh, I think they were really significant in terms of, number one, bringing the problem to the attention of the American people, uh, that is, where these drugs were coming from, and number two, signaling to the Chinese that we knew and were prepared to prove in court uh, that the drugs were produced by China, because at that time, Chinese officials were minimizing and denying the Chinese role in the fentanyl overdose death surge in the United States. This is why the case surrounding the death of Bailey Hinckley makes it different from the hundreds of thousands of other deaths in the opioid crisis. Because the indictment against Chinese fentanyl producers in China is a big deal. A month after that case was made public, Rosenstein actually traveled to Beijing on behalf of the Trump administration to pressure Chinese officials to crack down on fentanyl. My goal was to bring to their attention that we had evidence that people were dying in the United States. Uh, and uh, you know, part of it is really an embarrassment function. If you can uh, uh, make clear to a country that uh, you can demonstrate that people in their country are causing deaths uh, in the United States, that gives them an additional incentive to cooperate. While China ultimately did ban illicit fentanyl, it's still pouring into the U.S., allegedly from China. And Chinese authorities haven't arrested the traffickers from Brandon's case. Those people are still free. Do you still sell fentanyl analog? Oh, he set his messages to disappear, too. So we went to China to track them down. He says, I don't really have it now, not anymore. Actually, I am busy on teaching people to make it themselves. Dude, this guy's sketchy as fuck. 
I made it years ago. That's why I'm teaching now. This is not how I thought our night was going to go. Guy on signal offered to teach us how to make fentanyl with some basic chemicals. That's next time on Painkiller. Painkiller, America's Fentanyl Crisis, is a Spotify original production in partnership with Vice News. It's hosted and reported by me, Keegan Hamilton. From Vice News, Jesse Alejandro Cottrell is our producer. Editing by Annie Aviles. Sound design and original scoring by Steve Bone, with help from Pran Bandy. Kate Osborne and Annie Aviles are our executive producers. From Spotify, executive producers are Liz Gately and Erica Clark. Supervising producer is Jake Kleinberg. Associate producer is Baron Farmer. Special thanks for help on this episode to Tina Sims and to everyone at the Vice office in Washington, D.C., including Shauna Thomas, Simone Perez, Joe Tone, and Jesse Seidman. To see videos and photos from our reporting and go even deeper into the story, check out our website, painkiller.vice.com. If you're struggling with drug addiction and want to get help, call SAMHSA's National Helpline, 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357 or visit findtreatment.gov.